0: Greetings, you lucky people, you. Welcome to another dose of nasty pasty medicine. Though it's certainly not medically recommended, and nor does it produce beneficial healing effects. I'll drop the medical joke straight away and just welcome you to my show as I should. One in which I dissect a pair of violent films that are from the same class of filth that were irking the very fine people in charge of good old blighty of ages past. In basic terms, a load of old fogies and conservatives cried, Think of the children! and got a huge list of horror movies banned from the shelves for a very long time, roping the police in to do the dirty work, and then causing the country to become one of the most strictly regulated home video markets in the world, until fairly recently. As you can imagine, this irks people like me who love the shocks and special effects wizardry in these sorts of films, so I made it my mission to track down the nasties and see what the fuss was all about. This podcast is dedicated to the ones that got away, the ones that were officially not seized by the police, but left out of the furore despite being very similar to the offending material. Last week, we had theatrical slashes, and we're staying on the slasher train this week, only stopping at the misogynistic station. Yes, we've got two misogynistic slashers this week, in the form of Buddy Cooper's The Mutilator and Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper. Arguably, Fulci's film is way more misogynistic in its execution, but there are moments in The Mutilator too which have this theme. Before we go on to them, however, let's look at misogyny in general. In today's modern era, we still haven't quite solved the problem of misogyny, even though really it ought to have been driven away by now. Misogyny is of course either the hatred or contempt of the female gender, and it's manifested in all sorts of ways from exclusion, discrimination, patriarchal oppression, uh, hostility, violence, and of course the infamous male privilege. While these expressions are commonly characterized by men, some women even channel misogyny against themselves through acts of self-loathing, learned helplessness, obsessions with appearance, eating disorders, all from the viewpoint that without male approval, they have no value in themselves. Well, I think part of the reason why misogyny still exists today is the fact that it's, and the fact that it's been around for such a long time ties in with the fact that religion has continued to perpetuate misogyny in its own writings, and in a lesser sense, our own cultures too. Christianity, for example, teaches that having sex is a very guilty act, and that licentious, seductive women are the main cause of it, as harbingers of sin and damnation. In modern life, women are still excluded from certain Christian denominations, and the idea of a female priest or a vicar is still regarded with raised eyebrows. In Islam's text, the Quran, women are also depicted as only good if they're obedient, and describe men as the maintainers of women. And even in Greek legends, all the world's ills are attributed to a single female called Pandora, whose curiosity led to her opening a jar and releasing the evil into our universe. In modern times, social media continues to get progressively more aggressive and hostile in rhetoric with regards to women, especially those that speak out against said injustice. The horror film, and by extension the slasher flick, have also been cited as a perpetuator of misogyny due to the high incidence of murders and violent acts committed against women within. Dr. Martin Barker, one of the few defenders of the video nasties during the panic, says of films featuring misogyny, that the reason why people take issue with them is that they feature current scare topics and they point the camera directly at them. So for example with misogyny, they point the camera and say, This is misogyny. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's generate the powerful emotions around it. They put you in the situations generated by misogyny and invite you to look at the film and look at yourself at the same time. This viewpoint not only makes sense in a social context, as issues are in film are absorbed much more easily as you're being entertained and your defences are down in a sense, but also in a historical context, because while we still have a long way to go, equality between the sexes is improving slowly, and people are much more willing to speak out about misogynistic behaviour and the mistreatment of women. It's certainly improved compared to around 100 years ago, and cinema has been a big part of showing us those problems that we have as a society and it makes these issues worth depicting in films, no matter how brutal the truth may be. Without further ado, though, let's get on to our first film of the week, The Mutilator.
1: When the leaves of summer turn red and gold, and the football games bring a hint of the cold time to get away. We'll pack the car with escape in mind Forgetting about classes, leaving books behind Time to get away Empty cottage sitting on the shore Tourists all left about a month before And we're gonna have a good time we're Gonna have a good time Yeah, we're gonna have a good time We're going on out. A ball break, a in and The sweet's all there, I swear, we will never far. We're going on a fall break, Ball running break. in the sand, feeling alright. Right. And when you fall into my arms, I'll break into your heart. Who knows they swimming, in the surfing on birthday clothes and we're gonna have a good time. to Hey, good time. we're gonna have a good time We're going on a... Uh...
0: On his father's birthday, Ed Jr. cleans his gun collection as a surprise whilst his mother bakes a cake. Accidentally causing the rifle to fire, his mother is caught in the path of the bullet and is killed instantly. His father, Big Ed, arrives home and discovers his wife's corpse in the kitchen and then starts drinking, causing young Ed Jr. to flee. Many years later, while struggling for something to do for the fall break, Ed Jr. receives a call from his dad asking that he close the beachside condo for the winter. With his friends Ralph, Sue, Mike, Linda and his girlfriend Pam, they decide to go along with this plan to exploit the condo for a small vacation. Arriving, they discover the door open and loads of empty alcohol boxes, raising suspicion within Pam who wishes to call the police. Ed Jr. quells her fears, but as Linda and Mike make out in the condo's basement, Big Ed is revealed to be sleeping inside, clutching a battle axe and dreaming of Ed Jr.'s demise. After eating dinner, Mike and Linda go out for a walk and come across a swimming pool. Back at the house, Ed Jr., Pam, Ralph and Sue clean up after dinner and decide to head out to catch up with Mike and Linda, wandering amongst the beach. While after fooling around for a while, Linda is suddenly dragged underwater and doesn't surface, and Mike doesn't notice as Big Ed drags Linda's lifeless body out of the pool. When he finally does exit the water himself, he notices that his clothes are sporadically strewn about the place. Following the trail and getting more of his clothes back, he soon finds Linda's underwear leading him into the condo's basement, where he's suddenly attacked by Big Ed, who tears into him with a powered outboard motor, mangling his chest and killing him excruciatingly. After it's over, Big Ed drags his body into a trophy room, where he also pins Linda's lifeless body to the wall. When the rest of the gang fail to locate Linda and Mike, they're suddenly surprised by a cop patrolling the beach, who explains that he hasn't seen the couple. Pam mentions to him the state of the condo when they arrived and he returns to the house to investigate it. Once there, Big Ed ambushes him, stabbing him in the face with a machete before decapitating him with a battle axe. The group return and decide to play Blind Man's bluff, with Sue hiding behind the table with the beer cooler on it. Pam and Ralph soon join, but once they're all hiding together in the dark, they fail to notice that the person walking in the kitchen is not Ed Jr., but actually Big Ed, who's sneaked inside to unlock all the doors. Eventually, Ed Jr. finds them, and they suggest going to bed, so the whole group retires. Suddenly remembering, though, that they've forgotten to lock up, Sue has Ralph go downstairs to do so. During his travels, he goes into the basement, where he suspects Linda and Mike are hiding, only for Big Ed to be lurking inside. When he opens the door into the trophy room, Big Ed rams a pitchfork through his neck, killing him before he sneaks into the house and removes a gaff. Sue becomes suspicious when Ralph doesn't return, and enlists the help of Ed Jr. and Pam to help search for him after unsuccessfully locating him herself. Rather than search, Pam has had enough and wishes to leave, but Sue convinces her to search once more. Just as Pam and Ed Jr. leave to go look... Big Ed grabs Sue by the throat suddenly and slings her onto his workbench, shoving the gaff up her crotch and splitting open her groin before cutting into her neck. After going around the house, Pam and Ed Jr. arrive back at the basement to find Sue's dead body and the others, just as Big Ed starts to return. Bundling Pam into a closet, Ed Jr. fights with Big Ed, only to be knocked unconscious, bound and then stabbed in the leg. Pam distracts Big Ed by bursting out of the closet and throws a tack into his head before stabbing him in the chest with a knife, incapacitating him. Getting the injured Ed Jr. into the car, Pam tries to drive away, but then the car fails to start. Big Ed, suddenly awakened, tries to break into the car through the back window, but Pam repels him with a cigarette lighter. The police start to arrive as the car splutters into life, with Pam reversing at high speed and colliding with a wall, bisecting Big Ed at the waist. Ed Jr. despairs as he realises it's his father, only for Big Ed to inexplicably attack the police officer that comes over, severing his legs and laughing maniacally before expiring, dead at last.
2: What's this thing?
1: Oh, that's a gaff.
2: What's a gaff?
1: When you're fishing, you see a big one up over the side of the boat, thing.
2: hook it in. Here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I guess this is what he caught that fish with.
1: Nope, it's what he caught this girl with.
2: How did you know it was a girl? Yeah.
1: And when he caught her, he slid her open, and a couple of dozen little baby sharks spilled out in the deck, all flipping around with the yolk sacs still attached.
2: Oh yeah, you're sick. Nice.
1: <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Tell us about this. This one's great. One night, Big Ed. I mean, Dad and his buddies were all over here having a drinking party, and they decided to have a contest. Hey, let's throw pyramid singers to the wall. <laughs> you know, they almost made it. Well, Dad won the contest, naturally, and this was his winning toss. He was so proud, he nailed a picture frame around it. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: where are the bedrooms? Give us a break.
0: There's a lot to like about The Mutilator. It's an incredibly well made and enthusiastic slasher film from the mid 80s, when the golden age of slashers had pretty much closed off, but the second wave was in full swing. The slasher cycle's golden age began in 1978 with the release of Halloween, and it pretty much ended with the release of The Initiation in 1984. During this time, the slasher film lived its high-rolling success in the grindhouse cinemas and through theatrical exhibitions. But with the advent of the Silver Age, which started in 1985 to all the way through to the 90s, the slasher film found less success at the box office, but found a home mostly on home video, where it began to flourish. The Mutilator began life in 1982 when director Buddy Cooper had around $86,000 left over after selling something and he was conflicted about deciding whether to buy a new property or to make a film. He chose the film route and he also decided he'd go to an actual film set rather than using any of the money to go to film school first. He instead went to a three-week crash course in screenwriting and film production where he met the teacher John Douglas who would become the co-director. It was during these classes that Cooper first wrote the draft for this film, then entitled Fall Break. In the initial draft, there were a few differences, such as Big Ed's death scene in which he was actually supposed to be ripped in two by a turnstile bridge, but the scene was rewritten once it became clear how difficult it would be to film such a scene. Likewise, Linda was originally supposed to be shot from underneath with a spear gun while she floated in the pool, which would then open up and violently drag her underwater but they couldn't get the special effect to function correctly in the water, despite having made the prosthetics already. The decision to drown her instead was just thought of on the spot. Taking advantage of the fact that his father owned a beachside resort, Cooper chose to film on location at Oceanana Resort in Atlantic Beach and Moorhead City, North Carolina. Ruth Martinez, who played Pam, was in college at the time and merely saw an ad for the casting when Cooper began to advertise that he was shooting in North Carolina. Matt Mittler was an acting teacher from New York and his audition was in tandem with Ben Moore, who'd go on to play the cop. And in this case, Moore humorously was playing the part of Pam during Mittler's audition. Bill Hitchcock was only cast as Ralph just a few days before the shoot was about to start – Hitchcock was at a bar next door to the producer's office, and after hearing from the guy next to him about a film being made, he went there and asked if he could take part. At the time, Hitchcock worked as a magician, and he did a few card tricks which impressed Buddy Cooper with both enthusiasm and the personality, landing him the role. Jack Chatham, who played Big Ed, was a local actor who was sourced through an agency, and he'd previously worked as a physical fitness and a basketball coach. Contrary to his nasty characterisation, though, Chayton was actually a very warm person in real life. The film started principal photography in 1983, with a scheduled shoot to last 29 days, and it was shot mostly in chronological order with just a few exceptions, so the opening murder of the mother was shot first. Actress Pamela Cooper explained that it was just a simple bladder, full of blood, rigged to explode in order to show her gunshot wound, but she found it very hard to keep her eyes open during the subsequent scenes. The swimming pool, where Mike and Linda fool around him, was filled with milk in order to make the surface opaque so that the hide-and-seek look natural and that the killer could not be seen attacking Linda when he drowns her. Mike's death was originally involving a prosthetic torso filled with blood and guts, But the motor, unfortunately, wouldn't cut into it properly, so instead, they used some partial prosthetics with fake lacerations on it and just applied it to his chest. Sue's death scene of the gaff being inserted into her crotch was considered the signature kill of the movie that everyone would remember, and it was purposely written to be extreme, similar to the eyeball gag in Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters, or the fetus-eating sequence in Anthropophagus. Connie Rogers and Jack Chayton wanted to get it done on the first take, but during the first shot, one of the female crew members was running from the set screaming due to the effect that it had on her. The deputy, who has his leg hacked off in the film's climax, was actually a real amputee who was a friend of Buddy Cooper's. The shooting of this effect was actually quite frantic, as daylight was rapidly approaching and the sandy area kept absorbing the fake blood between takes. As mentioned before, Buddy Cooper's father actually owned the resort where this was shot, so the cast and crew pretty much were accommodated and fed on set. The whole cast and crew also got on very well together and formed lifelong friendships between them even today. The set was also rife with pranks as everyone was having a really good time, such as sneaking into each other's rooms and banging pots and pans in the middle of the night. During a birthday party for the special effects guy Mark Shostrom, which coincidentally occurred on a Friday the 13th, a food fight ensued that got the whole crew thrown out of the motel, which was quickly rectified by the owner, Buddy's father. Even the police were considered very helpful to the crew, who shut down traffic so that they could film outside the public library and also the drawbridge. This didn't prevent, however, the massive toll that the production had on the director Buddy Cooper, who actually had a bit of a minor breakdown around two-thirds through the production, bursting into tears after having a long walk at the beach. Apart from the rather long credit sequence, which is still playing around 15 minutes into the film, the first thing that one notices about the film is the rather catchy but cheesy theme song, which, apart from anything else, references the film's original shooting title. It doesn't do anything massively original or refreshing, but the film does defy its genre on more than one occasion, but usually with its characters. You have your archetypes, for sure. You know, like Mike standing in as the jock, Linda's the generic slut character, Ralph's the Joker, Sue's the sort of nerdy one. Ed Jr. and Pam are probably the most interesting, though, as they seem to represent the final girl and the final boy, but not in the traditional sense. Pam, for example, is actually really rather sensible. She wants to call the police, and she doesn't want to just glaze over the fact that a battle axe is missing, and that the house looks broken into. She also acts maternally, such as setting a dishes rotor. It does seem to be on purpose that Pam would eventually get to be more of the protagonist towards the end, as a way of showing that even nice people like Ed Jr. can falter in moments of peril. Ed Junior, however, is almost the exact opposite of his father, only wanting to please other people, and he's quite devout in his devotion to Pam, really not caring that she's a virgin and that she wishes to remain so, going so far as to sleep in the same bed, fully clothed. And they're actually kind of sweet, too, in their depiction, like suggesting a seashell gathering in the morning. Even the others, despite their insistence on drinking and screwing, they're not quite the stereotypical annoying kids that you'd expect – Well, with the exception of Mike. I mean, he's a pretty dumb one, and he only fills in the role of the muscle-bound jock. Not that I'm complaining about the naked guy, obviously. I mean, he's really nice eye candy. But the absence of the usually hateful, spiteful, insult-throwing adolescents is rather good to see. And it actually does add a bit more of an impact to the death sequences. They do, of course, do the usual slasher to-do list, like play Monopoly, a la Friday the 13th. They drink copious amounts of alcohol from the most manky, rusty fridge that I've ever seen in a horror film. And they go doolally for a little bit of sex, in a rather humorous Benny Hill-style sped-up camera jig. It takes the slasher trope of knowing who the killer is from the very get-go, and Big Ed is a rather mean-spirited ass. He drinks a lot, he swaps tales about the good old days where he did lots of hunting... He's kind of a traditional masculine figure. He's silent, he hunts animals for sport, and he just drinks lots of alcohol. I mean, infanticide is not necessarily masculine, but the idea of avenging your wife's death, no matter who the perpetrator is, certainly seems like he's just acting as the man of the family. This does flow quite nicely into the film's elements of contempt for women – The misogyny in the film is implied several times, like the reference to the pregnant female shark being torn open with a gaff and causing its unborn babies to spill out. Even the mention of virgins being sacrificed has a slight tinge of misogyny. For example, the victims are stabbed with arrows, according to Ralph. Phallic symbols, if ever there were any. And this, of course, culminates with Sue's death, a rather torturous and sexually violent one, in which Ed drives a gaff into her vagina, causing it to erupt from her lower abdomen, and then tearing her open, not unlike the shark mentioned earlier. To Big Ed, the kids are clearly nothing but game, prey meant to be hunted with, with an air of brutality and and a lack of empathy. This ties in slightly with how the original film was going to end... ...which hinted that the sacrificial mask, frequently referenced... ...was in fact involved with Big Ed's behaviour... ...related to a Mayan hunter's spirit that presumably was possessing him. This was meant to introduce the idea of a sequel... ...which the crew today are still enthusiastic about doing... ...which would actually focus on their angle of the sacrificial mask. The cinematography too is really, really sweet at times... Especially during the pool scene, where you get these really, really intense blues clashing with intense yellows and oranges that are on the top of the surface of the water. Although some sequences would clearly work better with the murky VHS quality, there definitely would have been around. Such as the game of Blind Man's Bluff, which it looks a bit silly on modern releases as there's clearly enough light to see where everyone is. The showcased gore effects, though, are really where it's at the string of bloody murders are all well-realised and they're very graphic for the era. Such as Mike's maiming with the outboard motor, the cop's face being stabbed with a machete and the subsequent decapitation, the pitchfork through Ralph's neck, and of course the money shot, the gaff through Sue's vagina. But the climax too of Big Ed being bisected is also pretty damn gruesome. The plot obviously is nothing to write home about, but when a slasher film is envisioned this well, who really cares? I mean, I'm a huge fan of the film as I'd seen it on one of the early Vipco DVDs of the early 2000s, but I did find out later to my dismay that it was actually cut, but we'll get onto that later. Actor Matt Mittler, who played Ed Jr., had a small role in Sean S. Cunningham's Spring Break before getting part on The Mutilator, which of course was humorously entitled Fall Break on the original script. He then went on to stuff like Dead Time Stories, Breeders and Basket Case 2 before having a wealth of voice acting roles on the English dubs of Pokemon. Ruth Martinez, Connie Rogers and Bill Hitchcock, who starred as Pam, Sue and Ralph, only appeared in this film, while Francis Raines, who played Linda, would reappear in Bad Girls Dormitory and Breeders. Big Ed was played by Jack Chatham, who also appeared in Rocking Road Trip the following year, whilst Ben Moore, who played the cop, also appeared in Herschel gordon Lewis's 2000 Maniacs, She-Freak and Suburban Roulette. Director Buddy Cooper's real wife and son, Pamela and Trace, played the mother and young Ed Jr. respectively, the latter which, after the previous actress, dropped out for religious reasons – Lastly, Buddy Cooper himself appears as the dead man in the photograph in Big Ed's Trophy Room. Director Buddy Cooper didn't really continue his filmmaking career, apart from a small short entitled No Time in 1994. Cooper, of course, produced and wrote The Mutilator as well, so this was one of those instances where The Mutilator was just a bit of a passion project co-director John Douglas also didn't really do much else other than work on the special effects of the sci-fi movie, The Abyss. The music in the film was done by Michael Minard, who went on to score the 1984 film Special Effects and 1987's Return to Salem's Lot. He also had a cameo appearance in Abel Ferrara's Miss 45. The cinematographer was Peter Schnall in pretty much his only horror outing. He's focused almost exclusively since on documentaries. Special effects guy Edmund Farrell ended up working on Tales from the Dark Side and was brought in to replace a young woman who'd failed to get an acting role in the film but wanted to contribute to the special effects. But on the first day, her boyfriend arrived on set and caused a huge scene, so Cooper had to let her go and replaced her with Farrell. Anthony Show, another makeup guy, went on to Nightmare on Elm Street Part two, Savage Dawn, Chopping Mall, and Sometimes They Come Back Again. But arguably the most successful of the crew was main makeup guy Mark Shostrom, whom we've encountered before on Videodrome, and he worked on so many well-regarded horrors like Slumber Party Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street One to Three, Savage Dawn, Alien Predator from Beyond, Evil Dead Two, Poltergeist Three, Phantasm Two to Three, and even one of my favourite comic book films, 1990s Dick Tracy. The assistant director, Richard Garber, notably worked on the Section 3 video nasty Christmas Evil in the camera department, and he went on to Tales from the Dark Side as well. Assistant editor, Hughes Wimborne, graduated onto much bigger pictures, like 2004's Crash, The Pursuit of Happiness, Guardians of the Galaxy, Pixels, and the recent version of Ghost in the Shell. The film debuted as Fall Break in a small local cinema in North Carolina, with most of the crew and the cast in attendance. Upon its subsequent re-releases as The Mutilator in New York City, the crew were thrilled to see the slasher audience's reactions as it ticked all of their boxes. It was released at first unrated, but obviously uncut, as the rating would have been X at the time, and this would have been classified as the same as pornography, which would have pretty much ruined the film's success. But soon after their initial success, no other places would take the film if it did not have a rating, so the crew was forced to cut the film in order to achieve an R rating – Edmund Farrell likened this process to circumcising his own child, and he was very against this treatment of the film. But as their hands were tied, most of the film's violence, including the aftermath shot of Mike's mutilation, the cop's decapitation, the shot of the pitchfork going through Ralph's neck, the majority of Sue's death by Meat Gaff, and the climax bisection of Big Ed by the car, was all removed. The film was released to VHS in 1985 in the UK by Vipco, the year after the Video Recordings Act was passed, so there wasn't really any chance at this point that it could have been seized, but instead it was a victim of the BBFC's overly censorious policies in the wake of the scare, and it lost 25 seconds of carnage. This version was eventually replaced by a DVD release in 2000, labelled as the Extreme version, but again, the BBFC required seven seconds of cuts to the scene where Sue is violated with the meat The film wouldn't be uncut on UK shores until 2016, over 30 years after the original release on VHS. It's really crazy to think that films could be affected for such a long time, but such was the result of the moral panic, ruining horror films for decades before finally coming to their senses. So, that was our first film, The Mutilator, so let's delve into our next nasty example, The New York Ripper. A man in New York walks his dog along the Hudson River, playing fetch, only to be shocked when his dog suddenly brings back a rotten, severed hand. At a local police station, Lieutenant Williams interviews the dead girl's landlady, and discovers that the deceased used to be a model, and that she received a phone call the night prior from a man sounding just like a duck, with a peculiar quacking quality. Elsewhere in the city, a female cyclist called Rosie gets into an argument with an angry motorist and pedals off after calling him an asshole. She catches a boat and finds the guy's car as it crosses the river and vandalises it using lipstick. A person, though, suddenly finds her and enters the car, speaking with a duck-like voice before getting out a switchblade and savagely stabbing her to death. Williams learns from the coroner that a different blood type was present at the scene, and is told by his superior to keep a lid on the affair to prevent a panic in the city. To get a further handle on who he's dealing with, Williams visits a Dr Paul Davis at a nearby university for a psychological profile. Later that night, a man with a mangy hand goes to see a live sex show and notices another woman in the audience called Jane, who's not only recording the performance on a tape recorder, but openly pleasuring herself. After the show's over, the female performer Eva retires to her dressing room only to notice that someone has stolen the light bulb. After hearing some noises, she's suddenly attacked by the dock-voiced killer, who shoves a broken bottle into her crotch, killing her. Shortly after, whilst relaxing with a prostitute he frequents called Kitty, Williams receives a call from the killer informing him of his latest conquest. Jane walks in on her husband listening to her recordings from the sex show, the two seeming to have a mutual agreement on the act. Later, Jane visits a downtown cafe and is accosted by a group of Hispanic men who sexually penetrate her using their toes under the table. When she appears to enjoy the ordeal, they reveal what's happening, embarrassing and humiliating her. That night, a woman called Faye notices the man with the mangy hand on a subway train who seems to take a rather stark interest in her. She flees the subway when the train stops only to be followed by him. Turning a corner, she suddenly encounters the Duckman, who slices her leg open before she manages to ditch him and wander into a cinema. In a frenzied nightmare, she dreams that she's being attacked by leering hands and is then sliced to death by a certain man. Faye suddenly awakens in hospital, with that man named Peter who killed her in a dream is there visiting. It's revealed that they are in fact a couple. Jane's evening plans involve her hooking up with the guy with the mangy hand, who proceeds to tie her up in a bondage game. Whilst initially playing along, he suddenly ceases the foreplay and phones an unknown person before physically abusing her and then falling asleep. News about the man with the strange hand spreads on the radio, alerting Jane, who quickly disentangles herself from the bed and makes a swift exit in her raincoat. On her way out, she's caught by the duck killer who slashes her from the abdomen upwards with his switchblade. Williams interviews Jane's husband, and after revealing that he knows about the tapes, he tells him that they've identified the mangy-handed man as Mickey Scalano, who's now their top suspect. Faye goes to stay with Peter after being discharged from the hospital, and after he leaves on an errand, Faye uncovers some documents that mentions a hospital, just as Mickey breaks into the house and attacks her. Peter arrives, though, just in the nick of time in order to thwart him. With the duck killer continuing to call Williams, his team try to trace him on the latest call, in which he threatens to sacrifice another girl, whom he names as Kitty. Erroneously tracing the call to an empty phone booth on the harbour, Williams is forced to listen as the killer uses a razor blade on Kitty's naked body, slicing into her abdomen, breasts and eyes. By the time Williams gets to her, she's dead and mutilated horrifically. And later the same day, Mickey's corpse is also found, having been killed several days prior to Kitty's murder, signalling to Williams that Mickey is not in fact the killer. Faye visits the hospital in Peter's documents and, finding the patient they refer to, encounters a young girl in bed who's critically ill, missing several limbs and being read a story by a nurse, who is enthusiastically enacting the voice of the main character, who is a humanoid duck. Paul and Williams soon enter the hospital as well, where the nurse informs them that the little girl Susie is dying, confirming Paul's suspicions about the killer's motives. Returning home, Faye notices one of Peter's knives is missing a chunk, just as the telephone rings, with both Faye and Peter answering it. The duck voice is heard on the phone, so Peter runs upstairs to get Faye, upset to see that she's actually inside Susie's room. Faye then suddenly stabs him, only for him to come back to life, speaking in the duck voice, and about to kill Faye, just as Williams enters and shoots him dead. Paul explains that Peter felt rage after seeing that his daughter will never enjoy life as an adult woman, and he perpetrated his rage into the duck persona, which he felt would then quell his daughter's suffering. Seeing all the other women enjoying their sexual freedom and their adult lives, he sought to kill them out of jealousy. Susie tries to call her father one last time to hear his voice, only for the phone to ring forever, causing her to cry more and more.
2: Mrs. Weisberger and Lieutenant Williams. This the girl? Oh, yes, Lieutenant. That's her, all right. But well, she doesn't look a bit like a... What I mean to say is that in real life, she was much prettier. A real doll. Poor thing. She was murdered, wasn't she? I'll ask the questions if you don't mind, Mrs. Weisberger. Uh, when did you last see this girl? Um, Anne Lynn. That was her name, right? No, that's her working name. Her nominee plumie or whatever. Good gracious, if I was as beautiful as she was, I wouldn't mind people knowing my real name. She was a model, you know, exotic poses and so on. Um, she had it all. She was destined for the big time. Well, I won't bend you here anymore, Lieutenant. But the last time I saw her was um last Friday. That was um exactly six days ago. Got an she had left your Second apartment right at seven o'clock. I remember that because I just turned on Dallas, you know, that TV series about that family that has money coming out of its ears. Well, it was just seven o'clock and she got this telephone call from this some person, biggest voice I ever heard. Sort of like a duck. Like a duck. Quack, quack, quack. Just like that. Not that he said, quack, 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 but that was a tone and he made an appointment to meet her. Yeah. Huh? How come you heard the phone call? Well, um, my phone's on the blink and sometimes it rings together with Anne's, So I answer, of course, and happen to listen in. Not that I pry, God forbid. <laughs> God forbid.
0: Well, this is one of those Fulci films that really makes the case for the constant accusations of Fulci being a misogynist. The New York Ripper is a very bleak, downbeat slasher film that actually functions narratively and stylistically as both a giallo and a teschi film, rather similar to when we covered What Have They Done to Your Daughters and What Have You Done to Solange. Unlike those two examples, however, Fulci's film is not only a dark, depressing tale of murder but its emphasis on sleaze, grime, and vicious savage killings of sexualized women really sticks in the mind for many reasons. The first of which is the tone of the film, running through the characters, their dialogue, the cinematography, and the camera work. The camera is very leery, for example perving on the first victim's legs and ass through the windshield of a car. In fact, the whole film and its depiction of New York is really, really dirty. The dingy, neon-coated, greasy feel to the streets, the languid lingering of the camera on adult shop fronts, the red lights, kinky posters, reps repeating, fuck show, best girls in town. It continues further with images of the live sex show, drenched in dangerous red hues, and emphasised by Jane's character, who in one of the most pornographic moments of the film, quite graphically pleasures herself. She's later assaulted when two Hispanic men penetrate her with toes under a table in a sequence that is not only uncomfortable viewing due to its explicitness, but the act is non-consensual. Matters then get further complicated when the act becomes consensual towards the end, only for the men to reveal what's happening, humiliating the vulnerable Jane. Mickey Scalano's apartment is rife with pornography from top to bottom, with a black cock-shaped crack pipe and drug paraphernalia. I mean, it feels truly seedy rather than erotic, and it makes the viewer feel slightly dirty and unclean having watched it, similar to kind of wanker's remorse after you've finished. This nastiness is then kicked into high gear as the murder sequences are so excruciating to experience, making this one of the most uncomfortable films to sit through, even for someone like me who loves that kind of Italian-American grime and sleaze. I found the film very overwhelming at times. You certainly can't say that Fulci doesn't know how to set up and maintain an atmosphere of sleaze. Secondly, the film's characters. I mean, the misogyny in this film is utterly rife. Characters spout that women should stay home as they're a menace to society and they have the brains of a chicken. The coroner, living up to the cynical New York archetype, just dismissively characterises Rosie's murder as a blade stuck up her joy trail and she was split wide open. He could have done a better job if he had more time. Just good, efficient butchery. I mean, really? Williams calls Kitty a dumb bitch over nothing. The Hispanic men are incredibly disrespectful of Jane, calling her a twat, and musing that it doesn't matter if she doesn't wear underwears, it'll just make it more comfortable, just before they sexually molest her under the table. I mean, they sleazily imply that she's enjoying the act, and then when she appears to, they humiliate her for it, almost as if to say women shouldn't be allowed to have any sexual gratification at all, rendering it shameful and sluttish. And this is all despite them goading her into saying that she likes it. It's pretty much establishing that they think they're the only ones who have the right to dictate how women feel and act. The various victims are also simply characterised as objects of sexual desire, such as Rosie, who's leered at and then insulted, Eva, who's a sex worker, Kitty, who's a hooker, etc, ex- etc. Et the only female who's not sexualized in this way is the final girl, Faye, but even during her dream sequence she suffers a crotch groping from phantom hands underneath her cinema seat. Even the elderly Mrs Weisberger, the landlady from the beginning, is judged as though she was a sex object, with the female officer referencing her age and unattractiveness with a sly, don't fall in love all at once. Even Williams kind of sighs about having to deal with her, and then true to form, even Mrs Weisberger starts describing the victim in terms of her sex appeal. In spite of Faye being portrayed as intelligent and not sexualized, she's still just not given enough to do as a character to make her stand out. I mean, sure, she figures out the identity of the killer and manages to stab him, but ultimately the film just can't resist ruining the strength that she has by having her saved by the male hero, Williams. The men don't fare much better, though, either. Williams is just not a charismatic protagonist at all. He seems disinterested and dismissive, he cheats on his wife with a hooker, and he fails to spot really obvious clues and leads, such as when the killer phones the station and when Williams is told... He basically goes, Well, where have I heard of that duck voice before? I'm sorry, mate, but you can't forget a detail like that. How did this guy even become a cop? And his act of playing Jane's private tapes just after she's died is not only tactless, but it's just fucking disrespectful considering she's just died. Paul, despite having so much screen time and dialogue, comes across as just incompetent and useless. The reveal of Paul being homosexual as well by showing him buying a gay pornography magazine... It's just rather throwaway and it's simply an obvious red herring. Although it is a bit silly to assume that Paul is the misogynistic woman-hating slasher just because he prefers men. And it's a bit of a cheap shot at gay men too. The actual killer, Peter, also suffers from the high amount of misogyny in the flick. Being a mathematician and studying absolute zero and entropy, as he he says, it seems to suggest that he's just a nihilist, only concerned with the futility of life and the physical world and the chaos that it's all doomed to go to. The fact that he turns out to be the killer just seems rather incidental. The excuse of his daughter being bedridden and not being able to enjoy feminine activities when she's older is not only quite poor justification, it's also just introduced far too late in the film to be meaningful. And it's not even implemented that well as either, because we're told he hardly ever sees her, especially not enough for him to inherit the personality of the cartoon duck that she reads about constantly. Lastly, there's the violence itself, most of which is sexualized. I mean, the duck-voiced killer spares no quarter in his violent dismemberment of his female victims. Rosie is savagely cut open from her genitals upwards, and then has her breasts sliced into... Eva has a broken bottle thrust into her genitals. Jane is cut open from the chest downwards. But that's almost nothing compared to Kitty, who's tied up and slowly, coldly sliced open with a razor blade, utterly powerless to stop what's happening to her. Her abdomen, her breasts, and even her face are not spared, in what is quite honestly one of the most excruciating death sequences I can recall. We'll get into that scene a little bit later as well, in terms of the film's censorship. All in all, the film's heavy focus on the grimy 42nd Street portrayal of New York and the quite bizarre and poorly justified killer's motives almost seem to suggest that it's actually the city itself which is the perpetrator of the violence. The sex shows, the prostitution, the male thugs, the vagabonds, the incompetent law enforcement. All of them are the real danger to women. Almost constructed in a sleazy, nightmarish pastiche that women have no escape from. Even the character of Jane seems to be portrayed as someone who's just been corrupted by the influence of the city, indulging in the perverse acts herself, and then meets her demise. Even though films like American Werewolf in London and Final Exam are spotted in the background, the city just offers nothing but death and degradation to the film's female characters, and it's one of those films that doesn't even end in a particularly cathartic fashion, ending with Susie's eternal crying at never having her father answer the phone again. It's just exhausting, although it does clearly take inspiration from the griminess of something like Bill Lustig's Maniac, but it's memorable for its very intense sequences of violence nonetheless. Strangely, having seen the Japanese VHS artwork for this film, it seems to be that Kitty's death was actually originally even more gruesome than it ended up, with some additional injuries detailed on her face on the cover. Somehow, I'm not so sure that it needed it, but I do wonder what on earth Vulci had planned for the actress to endure further. Jack Headley, who plays the curmudgeonly Williams, was a British actor who'd been in loads of British TV programmes, like The World of Tim Fraser, uh, Colditz, Armchair Theatre, and even an episode of Only Fools and Horses. But he made film appearances too, in stuff like Goodbye Mr Chips, The Longest Day, Lawrence of Arabia, and The Devil's Advocate. Almanta Suska, who played the role of Fay, cropped up again in Hunters of the Golden Cobra – whilst Mickey Ross, who played the gammy-handed Mickey, appeared in Naked Girl Killed in the Park and Five Women for the Killer. Now, the role of Faye was originally going to go to Catriona McCall, who previously starred in Fulci's City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and The House by the Cemetery. She was apparently disinterested, though, due to the reaction that the films were starting to get at home, and she gently turned the offer down. Peter was played by the devilishly handsome Andrea Occupinti, who'd gone to star in Fulci's fantasy film, Conquest, and Lamberto Barva's Giallo, A Blade in the Dark, whilst Alexandra Della Colli, who played the licentious Jane, had already appeared as the female star of Zombie Holocaust. Another familiar face is that of Paul, who was played by Paolo Malco, most recognisable as Norman from Fulci's House by the Cemetery, alongside the aforementioned Catriona McCall. But he also does crop up in Watch Me When I Kill, The Scorpion with the Two Tails, The Ogre, which is sometimes known as Demons 3, and Escape from the Bronx. Jane's husband was played by Cosimo Kinieri, who'd reappear in two of Fulci's later films, Manhattan Baby and Murder Rock. Daniela Doria, who played the hooker Kitty, was also a frequent Fulci damsel, who'd already been killed horribly in City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, and House by the Cemetery. And though we've encountered her already in Terror Express, Eva was played by Czech actress Zora Karova, who herself gets killed horribly in lots of Italian films like Anthropophagus and Cannibal Ferox. Also, Paul's assistant Heather was played by Barbara Capisti, who later appear in Stage Fright and Opera, and we only encountered her last week. Apart from the fact that we've already covered him on Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, The Godfather of Gore doesn't really need an introduction. His work is iconic enough, especially amongst genre and video-nasty aficionados like myself. Fulci had a rand in writing the film, too, but there were six writers in total on this film, one of which was Gianfranco Clarisi, who'd been a Fulci stalwart, really, working on his early giallo, Don't Torture a Duckling. He also worked on The Bloodstained Butterfly, Five Women for the Killer, Nazi Love Camp 27, three of the video nasties including Cannibal, Cannibal Holocaust, and House on the Edge of the Park. He also went on to do Devouring Waves, uh, Lamberto Barva's Delirium, Phantom of Death, The House of Witchcraft, and The House of Clocks. Jean Luoto helped write the English dialogue, something which he'd already done on multiple occasions for stuff like Bay of Blood and Strip Nude for Your Killer. Similarly, writer Vincenzo Menino also worked on a breadth of Italian genres like syndicate sadists, death dealers, house on the edge of the park, murder rock, naked and cruel, devouring waves, formula for a murder, phantom of death, the sweet house of horrors. Another one of the writers was a rather surprising chap who we've encountered before and Tony Pagan. Last time we saw him in Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 was one of the zombies, but he's been on all sorts of things like the Section 3 Nasty, The Killing Hour, Dirty Dancing, Enter the Dragon, and Saturday Night Fever. But it turns out that he's even more versatile than that. He wrote some dialogue for Bronx Warriors, as well as New York Ripper, and he's even done some producing work. He even has a role in this film as Morales, one of the Hispanic men who sexually assaults Jane under the table. Last but not least, Dardano Sacchetti also had a hand in writing on the film, and we've covered him so many times on this show that he may soon have his own section. Producer Fabrizio De Angelis was a recurring Fulci collaborator, working on most of his famous works like Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, New York Ripper, and Manhattan Baby. But he's also worked for others too, like on Confessions of Emmanuel, Bronx Warriors 1 and 2, Zombie Holocaust, and Formula for a Murder. Composer Francesco De Masi had worked on a few Italian genre films before, um, like Nazi Love Camp 27, and also The Inglorious Bastards by Enzo Castellari. He went on to The Escape from the Bronx, uh, Invaders of the Lost Gold, Formula for a Murder, and loads of many others. Cinematographer Luigi Coveglia had worked on the video nasty Flesh for Frankenstein, as well as its sister film Blood for Dracula. And he also went on to Dario Argento's Deep Red, Whilst the editor was someone else we know rather well, Vincenzo Tomasi, whom we've encountered on both Panic and Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals. The assistant editor was Massimo Cataldo, who'd worked in a similar capacity on Zombie Holocaust, The Last Hunter, Murder Rock, Formula for a Murder, and The Devil's Honey. There was also Amando Passe who worked on the editing and he'd done the same things on loads of others like Short Night of the Glass Dolls, Contraband, City of the Living Dead, Cannibal Holocaust, House on the Edge of the Park, House by the Cemetery and The Beyond. Now, the gruesome, extreme gore effects were done by Germano Natali, who's done similar work in other infamous horror examples, such as Devouring Waves, Opera, and the Teschi film Contraband, but he's also worked on some non-horrors, like Star Crash from Luigi Cozzi. He's also worked on no less than four video nasties, Deep Red, Suspiria, Inferno, and The Beyond. Other makeup artists, Luigi Rocchetti, graduated onto June, Conan the Destroyer, Last Temptation of Christ, Dolores Claiborne, The Devil's Advocate, U five seven two, Gangs of New York, World War Z, and the remake of Ben Hur just recently. Assumedly, his relative, another makeup artist, was Manlio Rocchetti, who actually won an Oscar for his work on driving Miss Daisy. Manlio also worked on the makeup of Island of Mutations, Perfume of the Lady in Black, The Killer Wore Gloves, Last Temptation of Christ, Devil's Advocate, Shutter Island, and most recently, Lamberto Bava's latest film, Twins, which is currently in post production. And lastly, there was Maurizio Trani, who we've encountered before on Almost Human. The assistant director, Mario Agostini, had previously worked with Mario Bava on his two films, Five Dolls for an August Moon and Hatchet for the Honeymoon whilst Roberto Giandalia, also an assistant director, was a common Fulci collaborator, working on such projects as Zombie Flesh Eaters, Contraband, The Psychic, City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, Manhattan Baby, and Murder Rock. The film was released in its native Italy in 1982, and across most of Europe the same year. It would take, though, another two years before the film reached U.S. shores, where it received a limited theatrical exhibition. At the same time, in February of 1984, the film was submitted to the BBFC, and the film was considered for classification. But one of the BBFC's examiners, called Carol Topolsky, after watching the film, categorised it as singularly the most damaging film that she'd ever seen in her whole life both Topolsky and the two female examiners accompanying her when watching the print had to retire to James Furman's office as they were crying. Topolsky now says that in retrospect she feels that it was mostly the idea that there was an audience out there that wanted to see this sort of film that really dispirited her and caused the tears. After the film was therefore obviously rejected for a UK cinema certificate in 1984, Chief censor James Furman took drastic action and ordered the original print to be re-exported back to the rights holder in Italy. This was to avoid any possible prosecution of either the UK distributor or the BBFC itself, as they felt that the article was obscene enough to be criminal to possess. The film, therefore, became one of the very few films outside of the video nasties themselves to have been banned in an exhaustive fashion. The film was then not released in the UK until many years later for the first time when VIPCO released it on DVD in 2002. The BBFC, though, was still cautious about passing the film uncut and they demanded 22 seconds to be removed solely from Kitty's murder to remove the shots of sexualised violence. This version ran in the UK until 2011 when Shameless Films restored the film for both DVD and Blu-ray. But unfortunately, the BBFC still demanded cuts, this time reduced to 19 seconds, but still applied to Kitty's controversial demise. The BBFC's policy of sexualised violence is still so strong that the shots of Kitty's belly being cut and her nipple being split in half is just too much. So, oddly, it's one of the few films that remains cut in this country, despite the contentious material not being animal cruelty. This is one of those instances, though, where I have to call bullshit on their guidelines, though. I mean, Lars von Trier's film, Antichrist, is released fully uncut, and it has graphic images of both male genitalia being crushed with a log and then ejaculating blood, and then shortly after, a vulva is snipped in- with scissors in excruciating close up. The fact that Antichrist is an art house film, whereas The New York Ripper is simply a grimy exploitation film, It sort of harkens back to the BBFC's historic instances of classism, once famously quoting about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that it's alright for educated cine-literate people to watch it, but they were worried about your average Manchester factory worker watching it. I have to point out, though, that it was in fact the uncut version that I watched, and though the scene is nasty in question, it's also clearly a special effect. I mean, nipples, fortunately, are not that stiff, They won't cut into it that way, quite frankly. The film is therefore available on cut in both the US and in different European territories for collectors who want the full experience, but on the other hand, Shameless do have a very good bunch of material with theirs for those of you who can afford both. So, that was The New York Ripper, and it's the second film that I'm covering this week. So, that does mean it's all over for now, so thanks as ever for joining me, and I'm sorry for the rather maudlin subject matter. Next week, we're covering two giallo films again, just because I love them so much. The theme, though, is influential giallo films, so I've chosen two that had particular influence on both the director's later work and other directors subsequently. They are Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling and Sergio Martino's Torso. Until then, if you do have any thoughts or feedback on any of the films that we cover, by all means, drop us a message on either Twitter or Facebook, or even just send me an email, nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Until then, take care of yourselves, peeps, and remember to tune in next week as well. Farewell, everyone!